Hello everyone, this is Stephen Salk from Solutions Brewing Co. And today I'm joined by Robert Kalachuk and Brendan Pipa. And today our topic is things you would not know about homebrewing until you've homebrewed a few times. And we were talking about this yesterday. There's a lot of things that like when you first start out homebrewing, you're like, oh man, this is going to be so simple. I'm just going to make beer and it's going to happen and it's going to be amazing. And once you've done a few batches, uh, you realize that there is a lot more to it than just throwing some wort into a fermenter and letting it do its thing. So to start this off, I'm going to toss it over to Brendan. What would, what would you say is one thing that people who uh, are not familiar with it uh, soon realize once they start homebrewing? Well, yeah, there's definitely a few things that you get into. The one that took me by surprise was the, the, the extra work involved in cleaning bottles for beer versus wine. I, I, I think we mentioned in one of our early episodes that uh, both you and I, Steve, we started brewing wine before we got into beer. Mm -hmm. And for a, a typical wine kit, which is kind of the same fermenter, fermenting volume as a typical homebrew kit in that kind of five-gallon range, you're dealing with 30 bottles of wine. And they're 750 ml bottles. They're relatively easy to clean. You can get brushes in and all that other sort of stuff, and it's fine. When you go to beer, you're going to typically, because if you're cheap like I am, you just reuse the beer <laughs> bottles that you got. So you're using, uh, what would they be, 355s or 335 bottles. And mm -hmm. you're, you're doubling the amount of bottles you get to. They're smaller, and they can just, I don't know, I found them much more annoying to clean and then to fill. And the incremental step to bottles was just dramatically more than I ever thought it was going to be. And you have to be particular about your bottles, too. Because if you get the twist-offs, generally homebrewers don't get... Uh, caps that can screw on you have to basically push them down and that can only be with pop tops where you crank off the uh, bottle cap yeah yeah absolutely and <laughs> and there's a special technique to re-putting the beer cap on which again is a little different than than the wine but it has its own little annoyance factor to it but that but that was kind of the big one for me so fairly rapidly moved from from bottling to kegs anyway because i just again i'm lazy and i didn't want to to do the work there but and that way, it's just one big bottle. <laughs> one big bottle. But even then, you're still dealing with, uh, you, you got to be a little particular about how you clean things and, and taking care of seals and, and making sure that all that works. So what would you uh, say, Kalachuk? I would say ingredient selection. And uh, sometimes I, even actually, you know what? Um, I'm actually drinking one of those mistakes right now. Oh, mm -hmm. really? Yeah. I, um, I have a particular fondness for ginger beer. I really like ginger beer. But it's a lot of work to shave ginger and then blend it. And then uh, I like to add it. Uh, I don't add it during the boil. I like to add it during just before fermentation starts. So basically I add it at the same time that I pitch yeast. And normally I do fresh because fresh is typically best. And I don't know. I was just experimenting. I'm like, uh, you know what? What if I add, what if I use an extract instead of just fresh ginger? Because it'd be quicker, right? All I do is you grab it throw it in there and good to go, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is that it definitely tastes, I don't know. Artificial? It definitely tastes manufactured. It tastes like flavor, you know, like ginger flavor. I mean, I guess you want ginger flavor, but it doesn't it taste like artificial <laughs> ginger flavor. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like it was made with real ginger. Fresh is definitely way better. So I would say with ingredients, go with, go with fresh or actually even convenient, more convenient is um, frozen. 
you might think, yeah, like why, why Frozen? Uh, well, one, Frozen comes in a nice little package, and um, because it's frozen, it's actually already sterilized. So all you have to do is let it thaw. Don't open the package until you're ready to use it and put it in. Oh, that's kind of handy. Yeah. Uh, don't do that for strawberries, though. Frozen strawberries are gross. Ah, uh, that's a hot take. <laughs> <laughs> well, this kind of gets to, like, we talked about this again on a, on a previous episode about using fresh ingredients versus other substitutions for it, like you're mentioning prepared ingredients, but we also talked about just uh, concentrates and other artificial flavors. And the impact that those have on a beer is more than you would think, and you can kind of see it on, on other other brewers, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, if I remember right, we were talking about that for um, watermelon. Yeah. There's no such thing as a good watermelon flavor. You have to use watermelon. Or like grapefruit. Like grapefruit can be very artificial or it can be very fresh. And it's, you know, <laughs> depending on what you use. The only other thing I can think of is the extreme importance on sanitation. Like it's not just keeping stuff clean, like everything has to be cleaned. But anything that's going to touch the beer or wort or anything that's going to future be future beer, any, any of that surface needs to be sanitized. Yeah, because cleaning doesn't remove everything. Like cleaning will get rid of your surface level stuff and that, but things can still be there like they'll be past the soap or past whatever detergent or uh cleaning solution you're using yeah kind of like that stuff like cleans the grime but the the sanitizer actually kills all the small bugs like the bacteria yeah bacteria and any any common mold spores or anything like that or, or heck even any yeast that's left over you don't really want that to sit and turn and become food for something else so Exactly. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, what's the saying? Clean clean gear, clean beer? Clean gear, clean beer. Yeah. So that brings up another one for me that that I kind of highlighted after, I think after my second brew or third brew, I, I figured this out, is, is cleaning right away speeds everything up significantly. Yeah, and way easier to clean. Like, as soon as you're done with it, clean it. Clean it immediately, because it just, it makes your whole life easier. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting and scrubbing and soaking everything forever i literally just made that mistake two days ago uh, <laughs> i did a brew on the weekend and i'm doing a variation on the kiss i'm changing the hops on it to see if it uh makes a big difference or something like that and so with the baby and all that kind of stuff i i did the brew and all that kind of stuff and then my ship kind of started at the end so i was like okay i literally just gave the inside of my uh my kettle just a hose down really quick so i was like okay i'll come back to it later and it sat on my stove for about two days. Then like the next day, went, went to work and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't really thinking about it. And I was like, okay, when I get back, I'll clean it. Nope, baby, you know, interrupted all those plans. And then it was the day after, I'm like, okay, I really should do it today. And I did. And there was little white spots all over inside the kettle. So I had to break it down. I had to take off all the fittings and all that, clean all that stuff, sanitize it all. And then just to as a final sanitizing thing i just filled the bottom with water turned it on and steamed it for like 10 15 minutes uh just to make sure after everything everything was toast but yeah not cleaning it right away cost me another two hours roughly yeah well and it's <laughs> it's another good example so like when you when you do your your brew your mash and your boil you're extracting all those sugars those fermentable sugars and you're just getting it everything primed for the yeast to do its work but anything any living bug will just munch down on those sugars the exact same way and i mean the only reason that your your fermenter stays in a, a decent condition is because the yeast is so active and just overpowers everything else right but yeah if you don't 
this would be an interesting thing to try. Not that I would recommend anybody actually do it, but if you pitched a little bit of yeast into something that you were going to leave, would it protect it? <laughs> I don't. As, as I don't long think as it produces so. enough CO two, like because that's like that's what you want. You want the CO two to protect, you know, protect the good bugs and you know suffocate the other bugs. I don't know. It might. It, that might actually work. I don't think so. Maybe if you had, um, you'd have to try and have the system kind of like closed. Like if whatever you're going to do, it's going to have to be in a bucket that's closed because uh, the yeast is not going to win against constant bombardment of stuff, right? If it's open, so I mean, not something. If you did it on your open countertop and you just left it for a few days, like whatever is floating around in your kitchen is going to win. So here's what you got to do: you just fill it again with water, put the lid on, because nobody <laughs> likes to look at a mess anyway. <laughs> or, or the better thing, and what I would actually recommend is just just try to clean it right away yeah <laughs> yeah honestly that's the best solution it takes like three to five minutes to clean and you typically have time while you're waiting for something anyways which is actually another point i think you wanted to talk about that one steve yeah so again i, I think we alluded to this in our first episode about mine and brendan's first time when we borrowed another vessel and you know like oh yeah we'll just knock this out in a couple of hours and it turns out water is that magical substance that is very very good at absorbing heat so <laughs> when you're home brewing if you're doing small volumes because i know uh like i i am part of i guess I, yeah i am part of the uh, local homebrew club uh a lot of the guys iterate on one to two gallon batches so when you're doing that when you're trying to get like the temperature up for a very relatively small amount of water it doesn't take a long time but if you're doing what we traditionally do which is five gallon batches is homebrew that's 20 liters of water so like the strike temp i usually try to get to is 70 put in my grains and you know bring it down and it usually sticks about 65 like i use hot water from my hot water tank which comes out you know somewhere you know 45 to 50 degrees and then it takes like half an hour on my stove to get it from that 50 to the 70. And then once you've done your sparging and all that, you're trying to get to a boil. Now you've got, again, six and a half, maybe seven gallons that you got to get up to boiling. And that just takes so long. And then the last stage is that after you've done your boiling, you've got to really quickly, or at least attempt to very quickly chill your beer down into the 20 to 30 degree range so you can pitch your yeast. And there are so many different systems to warm up your beer and cool down your beer uh, that it takes, again, just a long time. So a brew day for me, you know, using my uh, homebrew setup on the stove, like I do have an outside boiler for doing some bigger batches and you can, you can solve a little bit of this timing by going with an electric system, which is a bit more costly to do. Uh, it takes like five, and, five to six hours to do a batch of beer and it's, most of that time is literally water heating up and water cooling down. But you're not doing anything else. Like you might be watching a video on YouTube or listening to one of your favorite podcasts, Solutions Brewing Podcast. So what, what can you be doing during that time as well? Cleaning bottles, cleaning your equipment, uh, getting your fermenter ready, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we definitely should have thought of when we did the first brew. I mean, we've all, we all cook, we, we, we've all made past and we know how annoying and long it takes to boil water and that and you're just using like a, a four quarter or six quart pot for that and we're we're jumping that up to uh 
to a five five gallons of liquid that we're trying to get up to boiling and so you got to think it's going to take five times as long four times as long to do that <laughs> the nice thing about <laughs> cooking and fast is you don't have to rapidly chill the liquid afterwards you can just throw it down so i think i think we all got slightly different solutions for how we deal with the chill though because like you mentioned you want to drop it relatively quickly so that nothing has a chance to get in there and get set up before you can get the yeast pitched well it's that and it's also there's a compound that can form from a uh it's like in the i'm trying to remember what range it actually forms at it's like 50 to 70 degrees i think celsius uh and that's dimethyl sulfides so if you don't chill your beer fast enough, you'll actually form some of those from the basically like the leftover stuff in the solution in the wort, and that'll give your beer off taste. It'll 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 come out as a flaw. So that's why you want to again. That's another reason to chill it down as soon as possible. And you're right. Uh, my solution is I actually bought a chilling coil, which. Uh, you know, just hooks into my tap and I just run cold water through it and then it just hot water comes out the other end. But it's about 50 feet of copper tubing, like three eighths of an inch, I think. And it's just a big coil. So water goes in and just coils around until it comes out. And I can drop five gallons in 15 to 20 minutes from boiling to about 25 degrees. Have you ever measured the the temperature on the outlet of that coil? It'd be a, a little bit interesting just to know. Sorry, this is driving into the the engineer, and he wants to know how uh, how efficient this this system is. Yeah, because like it, it definitely comes out like the water comes out like eighty degrees, ninety degrees. Like I haven't measured it, uh, but yeah, it comes out with a little bit of steam on it when it first uh, does the cycle. So it's it's coming up pretty close to boiling, and then afterwards, like it's just it's gradual getting closer to the temperature of my groundwater essentially for anyone listening those coils are called immersion chillers because you're ah, literally you. immer- <laughs> immersing it oh crap now i can't see the word you're immersing it into the hot wort. yeah thank you i was i was trying to think of it and i'm like oh man i'm gonna sound like such an idiot <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um i use a plate chiller pretty efficient it's really neat they're they're not very large they're quite compact and um I'm not sure how to describe them in words other than you have a series of plates that are stacked together and you got water runs on one side and you got your hot liquid run on the other side and just cools down just from being in close contact to the water or cold liquid. For me, I got two versions of this. So I have the original plate chiller that I bought, which is kind of small, tiny, and it's good enough. Mm -hmm. does what it needs to do. And Brendan, for you, you were wondering about temperature. So the tap water comes out about like, 10 degrees Celsius, between 5 and 10 degrees Celsius. And then we'll come out the other end at like 30. So it's kind of kind of crazy about that heat transfer. Now, we bought that, uh, oh my God, the pilot system. Yeah. And uh, it had <laughs> a significantly larger plate chiller. So for chilling the uh, 20 or 22 liters of wort that I'm making, uh, it actually chills it so fast that it is too cold. <laughs> really yeah and i like it actually drops it that far it drops it crazy fast it goes in at a like the word is going down at 100 and then it's coming out at like 10 degrees and this whole thing like the whole thing the whole 20 liters will be done in 
three minutes. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> like basically, wow. I turn it on and be like, oh, <laughs> and then I just turn it off. <laughs> so what you got, what you got to do there is you got to pre-warm your uh, your cooling water to like 25 degrees, <laughs> yeah. and then that way you know your wart's not going to get any colder than 25 degrees. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And Brendan, what do you do for your uh, wart chilling? Well, uh, I have the uh, the the cheapest and the most um, I don't know brute force simplest solution. <laughs> I, I, I grab the whole damn boil kettle and I throw it in ice water. Um, uh, yeah, I used to do that, but it takes too long. I got so tired, so annoyed of just standing there stirring it the whole time. So it, it, it is annoying, and it, it's it's not. I'm eventually I'll buck up and actually buy an immersion chiller or plate chiller or something like that. But what I do, so I, it's a bit of a pain and I kind of consider it part of my workout regime. I, I usually do my, my boil in the kitchen in the upstairs portion of my house. And then I have in my basement, one of those big um, tub sinks. So I get that mm -hmm. full of uh, just cold water from the tap. So it's at somewhere between five to 10 degrees depending on the time of year. And then I, I throw a bunch of ice in that. And then I I just manually lift up the, the boil kettle and slow walk it all the way down all my, my many stairs. And, and you guys have both been to my house. So, you know, there's a number of turns and dips yeah, and dives. Yeah, turns and twists. And, yeah, I would say that's um, a little bit sketchy. Two, two cats <laughs> to dodge and a dog and, and all that sort of stuff. But And then and then you get down and you, you throw it into the, the ice water. and But the the trick I had, so like I, I started, I've, this is the way I've, I've always done it. And you're right, it can take a significant amount of time. But I find that initial temperature disparity between the, the wart and the water. So you got 100 degree wart and say you call it five degree water with the ice that's put in there in the first 10 minutes that water warms up significantly because you have that huge temperature differential and mm -hmm. so if you, uh, what i what i'll usually do is after 10 minutes i'll change the water out and put in another batch of cold water and ice and then you kind of maintain that high temperature differential so you can accelerate the process so i'm, I'm usually 20 minutes to to get down to pitching temp so depending on the size of your kettle because i used to do something similar like that too before i got the plate chiller um, my kitchen has a dual sink. So you, you plug one side and that's where you put your kettle and then you just run cold water on that side and let it mm -hmm. fill up and it will actually spill over into the next sink and you can just mm -hmm. drain out there. You just have to be careful not to do it too fast. Otherwise you'll overflow your sink and it'll spill onto the counter and floor and stuff. But, <laughs> and um, all that stuff you don't yeah, want. but at least you, that way you get, you're constantly getting like a, a fresh circulation yeah uh, of cold water and then you have to keep be constantly stirring the wart so that you're getting new contact all the time right yeah like i again similar i had a outside with one of my taps i put a, a big 60 liter like just blue storage bin and so i'd fill that with water and then in the winter it'd be frozen so i just break it up sort of thing and add a little bit of water from my inside sink but yeah i i put it in there and then i changed the water maybe two to three times depending on how uh, how cold the water was and same sort of thing like just stir it until the metal spoon using the stirrup and the water outside the kettle feels kind of the same and then dump the water and do it again but that's a very labor intensive version of that so you see i i don't actually stir the wort when i'm when i'm doing this oh it cools down faster if you stir it it will but then i have to sit there and watch it for the whole time <laughs> <laughs> true that is true. Um, so it, it'll go faster but there is there is a natural convection there and i've i haven't had any issues um off flavor wise with the with the amount of time it's taken to cool down so 
but again, it's I, I gotta figure something else out so I don't have to do that uh, terror walk every time I brew a batch. Yeah, man, I'd be worried about carrying literally boiling water downstairs <laughs> you know, like, with animals you know like animals running around the house too and, and eventually a small child will be running around as well so well, that'll just add to the danger once once the kid starts crawling that's it's that's going to be the trigger point to get a different system and probably brew somewhere somewhere else or or get something <laughs> set up for either my basement or my closet or something there so you can always just take the little one i have I mean, I've been using the larger one now. We'll definitely figure something out. And I guess to our listeners, if anybody has any other clever ideas or any other solutions for rapidly cooling down and heating up liquid, <laughs> let or us know. Or other pitfalls that you've run into. Yeah. So something we should try, actually, thinking of this, if, is we should do a double batch and use the heat off the first batch to, to preheat the mash water for the next one using the immersion chiller. If you're coming out and you're boiling, you're getting almost full temperature exchange. Save, save yourself some time there. Yeah, that would be... Like, if you were doing like a long day in a double batch, that would be the perfect way to do that. Because you probably use, like I've never measured how much water you actually use to cool it down, but you you get enough to basically get your uh, mash volume very easily. Yeah, that'd be a good way to speed things up for sure. Yeah, and that, you know, that's kind of an, an efficiency thing. And it's also a good environmental thing because otherwise the water just goes into the drain. So energy conservation as well, right? Yeah. You could always try and test that out, Steve. You could, uh, if you've got another pot or your yeah, which or yeah, your which mash I do. Bucket, I guess you could just you could put it back into your mash bucket and see how much water you actually end up collecting. Yeah, I think I'll try that next time. Uh, now that it, you've got it in my brain, yeah, I think that's that's pretty good for uh, for an episode today. <laughs> Look, we made it so far in this episode, and only Steve has homework, so I think we should uh, call it here before Rob and I stop the video. Bye, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> So our solution right now is to stop talking so we don't get ourselves into a hole here. <laughs> yeah, stop talking and go enjoy some fantastic solutions beer, like a missing piece, because it's a hot day still. Yeah, it is hot out. Have a nice blonde ale. Yeah. So, Rob, where can all our listeners find us on the internet? So for social media, we're on Instagram and Facebook at Solutions Brewing Co. And we can be reached on email at no problems at solutionsbrewing.com. All right. Take care, listeners. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks, Take care, everyone. everyone.